are listening to Conversations with Nathan Latka, where I sit down and interview the top SaaS founders, like Eric Wan from Zoom. If you'd like to subscribe, go to gitlatka.com. We've published thousands of these interviews, and if you want to sort through them quickly by revenue or churn, CAC, valuation, or other metrics, the easiest way to do that is to go to gitlatka.com and use our filtering tool. It's like a big Excel sheet for all of these podcast interviews. Check it out right now at gitlatka.com. So guys, hey, welcome to our episode of The Top. We're excited today to have Patrick Campbell uh, and Christian with Paddle. Again, obviously major deal recently announced, and it's obviously exciting and certainly inspirational. But my hope today is to drill deeper into origin stories of both the companies and then leap forward back to today. What does 2023 look like in the space they're both now playing together in? So we're going to jump into all of it today. Christian, uh, Patrick, you ready to take us to the top? Vodka, oh, let's go. Let's go. <laughs> Sweet. So, so obviously, um, headlined, if you guys haven't read in the news, obviously, you guys, uh, Patrick, you sold your company to Paddle here recently. Uh, you chose to put a $200 million deal price. Just, I guess, tell me quickly why putting that price out was important. And then let's go to origin stories of both ProfitWell and Paddle. Yeah, definitely. So it was, it was one of those things where, one, I think it's a good win for the team. Um, we were a little non-specific, like over 200 million, because also like we're continuing to work on a team, and so it's like, I don't know. There's some advantages in like being public. There's advantages in being opaque. We kind of chose translucent, uh, basically, and I think it was just it was one of those things. I think it's a good one for the team, but also like I think I don't think um, I think Paddle like doesn't get as much clout as it should, and so I think this is kind of like our coming out party together of like, no, you should respect these guys. They have a uh, a, a CEO of a multi-billion-dollar company recently told Christian he was like, "Oh, what was the price?" And Christian told him, "He's like, oh, you have balls." And it's like, yeah, we 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 want to take this market, we want to own the market, and um, that's kind of was driving that decision amongst the team as well. And to close that open loop, what do you guys define as the market you're playing in today? What are you going after? Yeah, it's a good question. I think the way we we've been looking yeah. at it is like payment infrastructure. I think that's a big thing that we think about. Like you have these infrastructure companies that are like Stripe, you know, in the, in our space and then obviously like AWS and other spaces and stuff like that and then those infrastructure companies help you support build whatever app like every single person you interview or listening to this podcast um, we're kind of in the middle. Like we're gonna do for um, the subscription dollar what Salesforce did for the customer record, um, where a dollar through Paddle is gonna be worth you know a lot more coming out of Paddle um, than using infrastructure that you know is currently on the market. Basically, so if you guys win, what does Zora's stock price go down to? Um, it's a good question. It's different, but I think that like if we win, the entire market increases. Like there's a world where you're using paddle products and still using Zora. Like as we move forward, I think like we're going to have everything for you, but I think if we win, um, the entire market is moving. The entire subscription market is moving. If that makes yeah, sense. I think also this, this space is so large. Yeah. Like there are a dozen kind of companies kind of directly playing in it and probably several dozen, if not hundreds playing indirectly in it. If yeah. you think of all the payment providers and sort of the service providers and, and, and people like that who also play in this space, the TAM is huge. Yeah. Yeah. The switching, I mean, Christian, you gave a great interview in 2020 with Dan Martell where you said, yeah, we are seeing a lot of people sort of switch from Zora for X, Y, and Z reasons. I mean, is when you're on sales calls, people switching to Paddle, are you really, I mean, is, is it the switching from Zora? Is it from ChargeBee? Like where are you earning more customers from right now? Um, I'd say it's probably reasonably distributed. I would, I would. It obviously depends, sort of, substantially on s- stage. 
Um, so kind of by number, it's probably people building kind of things themselves, sort of maybe they've kind of cobbled something together from a handful of different parts. They're probably not using a billing system like Zora or anything like that. They've kind of got started with something. They've scaled to 50K in MRR. Um, it's gone from being a side project to a real business. And then they need the infrastructure in order to kind of help them scale. And they don't necessarily want to throw people at that. They want someone to do it for them. Um, so by number, it's probably those, um, by scale of company, um, I think it's a similar story, but sort of, there tends to be kind of probably multiple systems, especially in these larger companies. Like we rarely see, um, a company exclusively using one thing. Um, they're often using different things for different markets and different territories. And one big piece of kind of the pull on paddle is because we've been very internationally focused and do it for you focused and all of these things is it like, it becomes a point where you're doing $50 million in ARR and it's coming through three or four different channels or systems. And you don't necessarily have a single source of truth for this stuff. So you decide to consolidate around one system. Mm -hmm. Um, so that it, it tends to be kind of both stories, different types of customer. And how are, how is, just if people are not familiar, how is Paddle making money today? Um, so we monetize the transaction volume that, that flows through Paddle. We don't take a monthly fee. We don't take a minimum. We don't take a setup fee. We don't do any of that stuff. We only win when the customers win. Um, so we monetize uh, the payments um, that are coming through Paddle, regardless of the underlying kind of payment method that is used. And we, we take a percentage transaction fee. Still about 5%. Uh, 5% and 50 cents is the kind of publicly available pricing. If you kind of self-serve sign up on the website, obviously there is a whole spectrum of customers. If you're doing a hundred million dollars a year, sort of the pricing does go down. If your sales mix looks a little bit different, like you're heavily sales assisted versus like in doing lots of wire transfers and things like that and invoices versus sort of credit card subscriptions, the pricing will look different again, um, usually to the downside. So sort of 5% and 50 is typically the maximum you'll be paying. Okay. And then based on those different factors, um, sort of you will, we, the price will go down. Now, as we talk about how both of you guys got going, ironically, I think both of you launched in 2012, which is fun because we can compare sort yeah. of even tracks here, right? But if we go back to 2012, Christian, was this always your billing model? Was it always 5% and 50 cents or have you pivoted over the years? Always. I think we had slightly higher pricing in the beginning. It was like 7 or 8% and, or maybe even 10. Um, and uh, sort of that was really when we were focusing on kind of like the initial people that we built Paddle for were people who look like me. So sort of pre-Paddle, I built a software company and I really ran headfirst into the problem that we try and solve, scaled it to three to five million in ARR, um, sort of, and ran into this problem where we were, we had a few hundred thousand kind of people using these products and so tens of thousands and paying for it in every country you can imagine and ran headfirst into these challenges of, of, of how we scale. So initially was building it for kind of the indie hacker, the bootstrapper, the kind of person like that picked a very simple kind of pricing model, which I think was about 10% of transaction. And then gradually you realize that sort of 10%, like a flat percentage doesn't necessarily work kind of quite as well as a percentage in a fee. Um, and then kind of just adapted from that. But we sort of, it's actually one of the funny parts of, of like this deal of like, we've obviously acquired a company that are probably the number one experts in pricing um, that exists sort of in this space. And I don't think that we've changed our pricing for maybe five years. Yeah. <laughs> so there's a pricing, there's a pricing change coming up, Patrick, huh? There's a well, pricing change. So I think what, what's, what's really kind of funny and what I was going to jump in there with is like, when you look at 
5%, right? It's like, oh my gosh, like there's, there's an initial reaction and, and that does happen on the sales call. Mm-hmm. But like to contextualize that, like, it's not like we're just processing payments, right? Like if you were, if we were just processing payments, like that would be a very like dramatic, like, oh my gosh, like, why are you guys so expensive? Right. I think what people don't understand is like the complexity of what paddle actually does. Um, tax is completely taken care of. Like, not like, Hey, we show you how much tax it's like, no, no, no. It's completely taken care of. Like if your tax gets messed up, we go to jail. Like you don't go to jail. We go to jail because we're the ones that are actually paying those actual taxes. Right. We handle like payment orchestration in the sense of like, Oh, um, it looks like uh, checkout.com is a better like backend. Like that's where we're going to process the payment through versus like Stripe versus where these other things are. And then currencies, all this other stuff out of the box. And so that's, that's the thing that I'm working on in terms of pricing is like, how do we best contextualize it so that when you look at that 5%, you're not like comparing it to, well, if I spin this up myself, like I'll only pay like 2.9%. It's like for actually what we're doing, it's, 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 it's relatively inexpensive for all the back office stuff that we're doing for you essentially. And so, yeah, that's, it's, it's definitely a project I'm working on. Now, guys, as we keep building on sort of the story uh, and go go touch pace with Patrick here in terms of how he launched, Christian, I mean, you did this. How old are you today? I'm 27. I'm 28 and next week. So, tw- oh, happy early birthday! Very cool. Thank when you. you hit though your first million bucks in revenue on that first project, how old were you? Uh, I was probably 15 ish, yeah, 15, Matt- 16. Matches my research. We're good. We're, we're right online right now. So Perfect. when you hit 16, nice. 17, you're breaking three, five million bucks in revenue yeah. before you move into paddle. One of the questions I get though a ton from parents who listen to the show is how do I raise founder and like entrepreneurial thinking kids? You're the perfect person to ask this question. Can you identify things like what is your, I know this is a little sensitive, but like what is your relationship with your parents and did they do things from ages zero to 14 to make you think like this? That's a good question. Um, I have a great relationship with my parents. Um, and I think the biggest, the biggest thing of all of the things is I think they encourage curiosity. Um, like they would give me like an old VCR player and I would like kind of deconstruct it and pretend I was making something when I was, it's my like earliest memory when I was like kind of three or four is like deconstructing like old, like home appliances. And I think they always encourage that stuff rather than being like, that's dumb or uh, sort of whatever. And then um, I think when I started to like get into computers and sort of um, the internet, like I still grew up, I am 27, but I still grew up with like dial up and and things like that. So sort of, it was still, I was still kind of early on that curve. Um, And if they really encouraged that stuff, they didn't necessarily understand it, um, but they encouraged sort of like me to learn these things and experiment and, and sort of do that, that stuff. So I think, yeah, I think just encouraging curiosity. I wasn't very book smart as a kid. I wasn't very, I wasn't a good student because I would get kind of distracted and bored. And I was always more interested in sort of, oh, I can go and tinker around and build something on the computer than I was sort of paying attention in like a class. So I think that was sort of a, that was a constant like battle for them of like, okay, like, do we encourage him to do more in school and do the homework and take away the internet privileges until it's done? Or do we encourage the internet stuff? Cause he seems to kind of really enjoy it. So, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm not a parent. I'm not going to pretend to tell people how to parent. Um, but I think that's the thing that sort of sticks out in my mind is, is sort of encouraging that curiosity. 
So they sure didn't obviously drive that curiosity. You were curious with customers. You build the business, that first business to three to five million bucks. And then you say, I'm losing all this money to these weird fees. I need to go understand these fees. Oh my gosh, it's a massive amount of money. I should go build a company around that. You get Paddle going. I think that was from maybe 2011. You get Paddle going in sort of 2012. Now, were you sole founder in 2012 or you have co-founders? Um, so I had I had a co-founder off to the fact, like about a month and a half in. Um, so Harrison, who you might've met, um, Okay. And I've worked with me. I met him online um, and I hired him into the previous business. We Wait, where, where online did you? Should I? This is dangerous. Where I don't online know. Did it you was like him? some forum or something. <laughs> I can't even remember. All right, um, all right. But I met him online and he was working with me, helping me on the, the previous business. Um, and I kind of just like went off and, and sort of started doing paddle. And then immediately, like a weekend or something, said to Harrison, like, Look, I'm doing this thing. It's been a frustration of ours at kind of the the, the company that like you've been helping me with. What was the name, by the way, that first company? the The name of the first company was called Invola. Um, I N V O L E R. Um, it was invoicing software for freelancers. Um, and sort of, we used to kind of like partner with people and do bundles and and things like that, which is where a lot of the revenue came from. Um, but yeah, so sort of. Started the business technically on my own, but then before we even like launched anything, raised any money, did any of that stuff, kind of Harrison was a, a co-founder. And I'm going to go over and capture Patrick's origin story, which involved multiple co-founders as well. But for your specifically, this is a question every founder listening right now deals with, right? Is like, who has much? Who's putting in more money? Who has more to lose? Is it 50 50 is usually the easy answer because you avoid the tough conversation. It's rarely exactly equal. How did you have the equity conversation with Harrison? Um, it was fairly easy on the basis that kind of, um, like I was bringing over like the initial money, um, in order to do this stuff. Uh, cause like I kind of, the other business was like reasonably successful. It was fairly low margin cause we did a lot of stuff, um, kind of like promotional stuff and discounts and things like that, but kind of, it was profitable. It made money and, and things like that. So I was kind of bringing forth the first sort of capital to put into the business. How much that um, Christian, are we talking a hundred grand, 200 grand. How much are you thinking? Something in the, in that re- I actually don't even remember. It was probably, okay. cause it was like in little chunks. Um, as yeah. we kind of like built this stuff, it was probably call it hundred K, um, okay. sort of uh, to begin with. Um, so I think, um, Sort of, it was. We knew that it was going to be majority me. Um, yep. I think I don't even remember what the initial kind of equity split was. It was sort of like two thirds, one third, or three quarters, one quarter, or something like okay. that. Um, uh, sort of, and but kind of, it was a fairly you know, easy conversation for us to have on the basis of, of kind of how the how the business started. So something like seventy you thirty him, eighty you twenty him, something in that sort of range. Rough, roughly in that that range. Yeah. Okay. Let's pause there. Let's go over to Profwell. Patrick, did you have an your own version of an Involar? Uh not really. I I didn't have my parents, like to my dad, the idea of starting a business is like a little bit like blasphemy. Like he's not a, a Luddite or anything like that, but he's um big union guy out of the Midwest. Like we grew up pretty poor, like got laid off, like, you know, a lot because not because he was like, he's incredibly hard worker, incredibly smart, but like, you know, it's hard being like a skilled tradesperson, like, you know, 20 years ago, like now, like there's such a shortage, you know, you have electricians making 120 a year, you know, not working more than 40 hours a week. Right. It wasn't like that, you know, 20, 30 years ago. And so I think my dad, it was always like, oh, you should go be a doctor. You should go be a lawyer. Like he didn't want me to be a lawyer, but he was like, if you don't want to be a doctor, then go be a lawyer. Like the classic, like 
go from, you know, you're going to be the college kid. The first college kid needs to go be a professional. Right. And so, um, then he was also in the Navy. And so when I went and worked in the Intel community, um, DC, he was very like, Oh, that's great. Like you'll have a job forever. That's awesome. You're doing like good, honorable work. And then I was like, ah, like I'm going to go to work at Google. He's like, Oh, that's fine. Like large company. You're going to be like safe. Then I was like, oh, I'm going to go to this venture back company. And he's like, what? Like, what are you doing? <laughs> like, this is crazy, right? Um, and so I think from, from my origin Wait, story- Wait, what, what was the venture back company? Uh, it's a company called Jimvara. They were like a Blue Nile competitor, like customized jewelry. And um, that was actually one of the first projects I, I got assigned, like was basically um, working on pricing there. And they had, because of the customization, they had like 1.6 million different SKUs. And that's a it's an interesting pricing problem. Oh God, yeah, it was an interesting yeah. pricing problem. By the way, this is why I love like, getting origin stories because everything today starts making so much sense when you hear stories like this. Patrick yeah. guys is a freaking jeweler. He's trying to sell 1.6 million different SKUs when he's what? How old were you, Patrick? Uh God, had it been like 22, like something. And like what? That? You're 30, like, 32 today. Uh, about 33. Yeah, yeah. yeah. 33. So, yeah. Okay. It's kind of funny too. Like it was, it was. Um, yeah, so I'm, it was really interesting, like from an origin story perspective too, because like I, um, so I I, 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 I have Asperger's, so that's another thing I don't think I've ever told you, and I've been more open about that recently. And it was like, I think like the social elements of starting a business were always like what scared my parents or scared me a little bit, because it's like, like I'm functional, but it's not like uh, it was like, oh, you're gonna go do something where you have to like rely on relationships, like, and it was kind of like an interesting conversation about that, um, but. Then it was like, I think tech is one of those beautiful places where you can go work on like a giant data set and then you find those like social interactions and then you kind of build from there. And so, but yeah, I was at Jimvara um, for like nine months. I was not enamored with the culture. Honestly, like my trajectory was probably always going to lead to like doing my own thing or at least getting a job where like I was just in a box, um, you know, all day, every day because. I just, I didn't like bureaucracy. I always felt like I, I knew, or I not knew, but I was cared more than my boss. Um, I think it was always that feeling of like, you know, oh, I'm going to put the time in and then that doesn't get always rewarded in certain places. Uh, because at Google, it's like, you can't move jobs no matter how good you are. Like I, I built this like very like money-making algorithm for their, their ad product. And, um, and how did you do that? Because like, you're not an engineer, right? Or are you an engineer? Data science. So I have a data science. Data science. Okay. I can I can do a lot of modeling and stuff like that. And so like I, I would never call myself an engineer, but like data science, absolutely. That's the kind of work I was doing at NSA. Um, and then at, at Google, like I used some of the similar models to basically build this. Um, all it was was like a um, um, it just it took a book of business, like a sales book of business, and prioritized it. That's really all it did. Because at Google, their sales teams aren't like true sales teams. They basically say like, here's ninety accounts go grow them. Right. And it's like over a quarter, like 90 accounts, it's like, it's a prioritization problem. So I built this thing that basically said, Hey, I know like the quant team told you that, you know, these are the accounts you should focus on, but like, they don't have these bottom up inputs, put in these bottom up inputs and we'll prioritize it. I think the first quarter I did it, I hit like 180% without like working that hard. And then Mm. I started scaling it manually across the sales teams. I made Google a ton of money. But the point I was trying to make was like, they gave me an award and like a $5,000 bonus. And they were like, yeah, we're going to shut this down. And I was like, why? They're like, well, it's really cool. But like this, like, you know, $600 million opportunity isn't big as this billion dollar opportunity. And it's Google, right? And I was like, well, can I like work on it? No, 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 no. You haven't been here two years. You have to like go be a salesperson still. And it was like, I was like, screw this, right? Like if I'm going to bounce my ass, like I want to, I want to kind of 
at least fail uh, on my own and succeed on my own kind of a thing. And so, yeah, that's what led me to startups basically. And then the common theme was when I was at Jimbara for nine months, I was like, ah, this culture isn't great. Uh, and I was like a young punk ass kid too. So it's a, just a different world um, than, than I am today. Now I'm an old punk ass kid, basically. <laughs> All right. So 2012, you get going. What What is the profit? Well, or price intelligently MVP? And same question, do you sole founder or multiple founders? Yeah. So um, not a great origin story there or like founding story. Um I think everything's good now and everything worked out, obviously. But like, uh, I'd never founded a company before. I got introduced. I started getting into the Boston ecosystem. I got introduced to these other two uh, people who were thinking about like the similar space. And one of them had never started a company before. The other had only done venture back stuff and wasn't like a founder. And so all of a sudden, it was like, let's do this thing. Well, we're working on other stuff. These two people, so they were like, we'll do part time, right? And I think that's kind of like famous last words, like. If someone's going to be part-time, you have to set really, really clear expectations about value, all this other stuff. And these guys were both like, you know, in the space, they're like a decade older. So I just kind of yep. made a lot of like naive Midwestern assumptions. And I don't think anyone was nefarious, or at least like it's so much better to think of it because you know, they've been in the business the whole time. They're on our board, like they were never like full-time in the business. But I think that was like something that would have saved a lot of like um like a lot of calories and just a lot of frustration was like setting really clear expectations because we messed up like the equity structure. We basically were like, well, we're all co-founders. Like let's do thirds. Right. So like these guys who are never a day in the business, all of a sudden were like, had a lot. And then, you know, once someone has something, it's really hard to like get it back, you know? And so um, thankfully like over time, like they were really earnest on keeping things going. And so um, they basically became their stakes are more like angel investor stakes, if that makes sense. Um, and so, like everything got sort of recapped, but not in like a true recap fashion. But yeah, that was that was one thing that I would say is like founder vesting. Like always do founder vesting. Like always, always, always. Everyone should vest. Um, I think like it will work if you don't do that, but I think that helps a lot. And then you guys both um, still. I mean, because Christian, Christian, you're doing this too. Obviously, when you're hiring on new employees at Paddle, right? You guys both still like year cliff for your vesting. That's the standard you stick with. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. that's what we do. We actually at Profitwell, the one thing that we did is we did um, like backward bending vesting. So it was 10, 20, 30, 40. It's kind of like how Amazon used to do it. So like you only get 10% of your your shares allocated shares when you get over that one year cliff. Um, and so most of your shares will come into the third and the fourth year. Um, we did 25, 25, 25, 25 vesting at first. Um, but then it was like, we, we had to make a decision as a bootstrap company. Like, do we just want to hoard the equity like amongst like the exec team basically? Um, yep. That's what a lot of bootstrap companies do. And, and we always had intentions of growing and being a large company. So it was a little easier because we were like, no, we need people who are going to be here eight, nine years, that type of a thing to, to come with us. And so... But yeah, founder vesting and then also just setting expectations early on. And the MVP, to get back to your question, was um, this little software product that basically you would send a survey um, through the link that was produced through the software. And then you could answer or someone could answer these pricing questions. We pulled the data in and then basically um, the algorithm would crunch the data and give you this like willingness to pay information. So it was supposed to help product people with like pricing their products. Um, we very quickly learned that like, pricing, there's a trust gap. Like There's a lot of products out there that have trust gaps where it's like, you can give them the tools to do the thing, but at the end of the day, they're gonna like, can someone just do this for me and help me understand like what I should do? You'd have like some of the smartest, some of our earliest customers, they're like public companies and they would be like, 
you know, like some of the smartest people, I give them any other problem, any other problem, even if they don't have the skills to do it. Like I give an HR person an engineering problem. They'll like go try to figure it out. Pricing, everyone kind of like gets uncomfortable and, you know, like they just start like, oh, we'll figure it out next quarter. And then you go five years without changing, Ooh. changing prices. Oh, Christian has done so. Uh, Christian, were you going to add something there? No, I was just saying that's, just a, low, that's a low blow. Yeah, that's all right. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so so a couple things here. I'd love to get a little more insight in. Patrick, what you just described, obviously, first of all, thanks for sharing it. Obviously, equity stuff early on is really difficult to talk about. However, yeah. ton, almost like I can't, I can name way more founders that deal with this issue than than ones that get it right from day one. In other words, there that's are, why I bring it up. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. how do you actually... Okay, so there's three co-founders. You own 33% each. I'm going to make this up. You, you realize a year in that that some of them are less involved. You need to figure out a way to sort of get that equity back. Do you go raise from some angels you respect to buy them? How do you do it? Yeah. So if I was... So one, I bring it up because I was so embarrassed when like this like happened. And it was one of those things where like as soon as I started bringing it up to some like founder friends I started making... They were like, oh yeah, happened to me too. Like it happens all the time because you don't, yeah. you're not going to spend the time arguing over like, like something that doesn't have any value or just something that doesn't exist. And then all of a sudden when stuff like starts being valuable, it's like, oh man, like there's no incentive, right? Like these guys had no incentive to like recap or anything like that. Now, well, Patrick, did hold on, time, on a timeline right? for us. When, when was that moment for you? When was there something to lose? Was it 2013, 2014, 2015? It was about 2013. Yeah. Okay. Like, and you had revenue at this all of a point. Sudden, yeah, we close or I close. And when I say we, it's really me. Like I was the only one like full time. I was working 18 hours a day. Like within nine nine months, like I had closed probably about a 200 grand in um sales. In in sales. And I wasn't paying, I wasn't making anything. I was like, we had no that was the funding in the business. That's when I started bringing on Peter, who you've met before. Um, and so all of a sudden, like I got Peter brought on. And then this is where it started like kind of crumbling. It was like, okay, so Peter's really gonna be my co-founder. Because like these guys are like helpful and and don't get me wrong, but like they're not co-founders, right? Like that's yep. why I say like founding advisors, board members. But Peter and Faku, who came on 2014, 2013 as a contractor yep. and 2014 full time, like those are my co-founders, right? And and like yep. it, I'm not trying to take away from from those guys. Like I love them, like, they're my brothers, all that kind of stuff. But we we definitely had to like go through some some years of development to like because and it's it's hard because like I told I said before, it's I can't think of them as being nefarious. Like I tell the story to a bunch of people and they're like, yeah, they were trying to screw you over. They were like, they recognize a young person and they were like, this guy's going to go build a company. And we're going to get a big cut. Right. But if I think that way, then like, I can't work with them. I can't be friends with them. Those types of things. I think more no. like none of us knew what we were doing. The problem was, is like, okay, so how do you unfurl this? The easiest thing to do is just like recap. Right. And just be like, Hey, everyone, like let's recap. But it's, it's just, it's hard. Like the incentives aren't there, like, cause they've already been given something. Right. And so what we ended up doing, um, there's a couple things and there's some things I would do differently before. Um, Tell one, us what I you did was, first and then what you would change. So what I did is what straight up was just like, Hey guys, like I, I need more of this. Like, I, I don't know what the expectations were. Like everyone had a little different thought in their head. Um, we need like, I need more of this, right? Like I, we need, we need more, we need this. Like I, I need to be taken care of. Um, and then what I ended up doing is, so I got like a number of large grants to like, kind of like fix the first mistake. Wait, then, how did you, um, how much, how much total in grants? Uh, I, I want to be careful about like percentages and stuff like that, but like we went from, Oh, oh sorry, sorry. You mean equity grant? I thought you meant grants from like the government. 
No, 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 no. Like, like we've never raised money. We've never gotten any <laughs> money from anywhere, right? So you're talking option short, grants. Yeah, yeah. So I got a number of very large grants to like start even things out, option grant or equity grants, basically. And yeah. then what ended up happening is I brought Faku on. Faku wasn't going to come on for like like a small percentage as like the the first, you know, like actual product engineering leader. So he basically got a co-founder share, which didn't come out of my side. It came out of their side, basically. Um, and then there were then the the big things we did over the years is we would have milestone grants. So like once the business hit a certain amount, like essentially we'd get these giant grants for like probably like 10 to 15 different people in the company. And those names would change depending on like the cycle of the company and things like that. And I would get and the people like myself, Aku, Peter would get these large grants as well to like maintain and also increase like essentially the stakes. So and this wasn't end, you taking equity from those two other founders. You started with that own 66% behind them. What you were doing was issuing new grants. So everyone got diluted on a yes. weighted average basis for Faku. So basically, for- totally. So the people actually in the business and the, yeah. the, the co-founders of Peter and Faku and myself, we like ended up with a lot more than we had essentially in the beginning. And these guys basically just like went down over time, which honestly was like a very stressful way to do it. Because I think that like, it was a lot of mind games that I would like, I don't know if they actually thought the way that I was thinking they were thinking because all of a sudden you're in this like game theory, like baloney basically where you're sitting there and you're like, okay, uh, well, I don't know if he's going to go for it, you know, that type of thing. Right. And you're not having these like straight up conversations and you don't trust, like you don't trust these guys at all. Like I didn't trust these guys and it's been really hard over the past 10 years because like I, it's almost like I can't trust them. And it breaks my heart to say that, but it's like, it's, it's a weird, like, um, like I don't truly know. Right. And we've all grown and we're all good and we're like brothers and hanging out and all that kind of stuff. But it's like one of those things that it was a really I don't think it was the best way to do it, but it was the best way we all knew how to do it, including them. Yeah. And so I think like what I would have done is, and I would do this again now, like let's say I was founding a company with someone and it just wasn't working out. I would go to this group and say, listen, this isn't working out. You might've thought this was going to work out this way and you didn't know. I thought it was going to work out differently as well. Yeah. Like, let's recap this. Let's figure this out. I think what's fair is this amount for you. I think this is fair for me since I'm the one going forward. Like, let's do that. And if they said no, I would be like, okay, well, then I'm going to leave and I'm going to basically do the same thing or something similar. Like, we at one point, like, this is details that have never come out. Like, and I don't think we needed to do this, but like, we did. Like, Faku didn't sign his employment agreement for like a year because we were like worried that we were going to have to like take the source code to do. And some of this is like basically just building contingencies in case like, these yep. guys didn't go for something, but it would have been so much easier to just have like a very mature conversation. I don't know if I was in the place. I don't know if they were in the place to have that in the beginning, but like that would have been a better thing of like, literally like, cool, I'm going to go work on this now on this new entity rather than like dealing with this entity because like this isn't going to work. And I don't want this like hanging over my head for the next, you know, whatever number of years. And so, yeah, it was, it was definitely something that was like, you know, tough. Um, and the other way to do it, would have been to raise money to like buy these guys out. I don't know. It's kind of like in my mind, in this structure that I described, it's kind of like distracting the business significantly for a clerical error rather than like actually moving forward. So it would have been, I think we, I would just restarted the company or or come up with a new name or something like that. Now, Patrick, Um, these guys deserve a lot of credit for maybe it wasn't the perfect situation, but they at least heard you out. You got to a solution you liked. I mean, can we name them to give them credit? 
I mean, people can look these two um, people up and it's pretty clear who they are. I think they yeah, deserve some no, credit. Like, I love these guys. Like, don't get me wrong. And they've helped the business in many, many ways. Like they've, they've pushed me, they've pushed the business forward. So like, there's no animosity on my end. I don't think there's any animosity on their end. Like I, we, they got good chunks, like good, good checks, you know, the yes. past couple of weeks here. Christian like, smiling. So, big, so like, I know that that is true. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So it's not like a, it's, it's not an animosity thing. Yeah. Like Christopher O'Donnell, like, yeah. um, Christopher O'Donnell and I are like very similar in many different ways. I think that's why um, we work really well together in terms of like trying to create greatness. Like he made HubSpot what it is. He is top 10 product leader in the world, like in the freaking world in terms of B2B SaaS. Um, and Aaron White, one of the best technologists um, you know I've ever met. Uh, he's now running, uh, he's a CTO and running tech over at um, Vendor. Vendor. Um, yeah, these guys are, these, these guys are my brothers. And so like, I don't bring up the story for any animosity. I bring up the story of like, it would have saved all three of us a lot of like bullshit and emotions. Like if we would have just handled this the other way. And I'm 99% certain they, they agree with this as well. Like I don't, we haven't, we kind of like stopped talking about it four or five years ago because we were like, cool, we're on a path. It doesn't work for us to like rehash this a bunch of times because like, let's just move forward. If that makes sense. You would have got to the same outcome, but with, sort of like less heartache along the way. Totally. Like we would have probably gotten to the exact same numbers that we got to if we would have had that conversation year two than like doing all these little bits over the past like 10 years, essentially. Um, Christian, the other way to do this is- I don't know. Maybe I wouldn't have been incentivized because like going after this revenue milestone was a lot of like, well, I know I'm going to get the next equity grant. I know I'm going to get that or the whole team's going to get the next equity grant. So I don't know. Maybe, maybe, maybe the way we did it was right. I don't think so because like it definitely caused me a lot of like bad nights. But I think it was definitely one of those things that like you just have to have good communication and good alignment. And I think I didn't really do that maturely in the first few years. Like I just kind of got into this hole of like these guys are a little more of my adversaries than they really are. Guys, hopefully you're learning a ton from this. I mean, what's really interesting to me is, you know, Patrick, you know, comparing against Christian, right? So Christian, you were able to sort of keep everything very clean at the beginning because you already had an exit, right? A mini exit or a mini company on your belt with profits and you could just put the money in and do it. This is why I try and get founders all the time. I say, guys, just get your first exit done. It doesn't have to be 10X. It doesn't have to be a Christian Patrick deal. Just get your first deal done so you have some money so you can go double down on yourself the next thing. And Patrick, if, you know, who knows, right? But if you maybe had 500 grand when you launched, Maybe it would have been a cleaner cap table from day one. Maybe. Yeah. I think that um, it's not always about money, right? I yeah. think like dating your 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 co-founder for a little bit or dating those folks, like I know like for the rest of my life, like I'm building companies with the people I'm already building with, right? And I and like the plus or minus of those people will just depend on interests and timing and those types of yep. things. But like I think it's one of those things where like finding that tribe is like almost more important, right? Like, I think like, for example, like Harrison's not in the business anymore, right? Mm-hmm. Like Christian or C- Christopher and Aaron, like I haven't like directly worked with, but like the next company, if we're like, oh, cool, we're going to start this cool thing. Like there's a list of people like we contact first, right? Because yeah. we, they're known quantities. Like we know strengths, weaknesses, we know all of those things. And it's like, yeah, like I don't know Harrison that well, but what I know of Harrison is like, yeah, I'd love to be on a founding team with him, right? And so, like, I think that's the thing that, like, finding your tribe and being a bit patient, and then being like easy on yourself when like stuff messes up, and just being really communicative and confrontational, like not in a volatile way, but just confrontational, I think is really important because these hard conversations are the ones that you put off, and these hard conversations, like, if you're putting them off, these problems only get bigger. 
Like they only become higher stakes, right? Like getting equity from these guys later in the business is so much harder than like if we just like fix it in the beginning, um, just from a physics perspective. Guys, moving away from equity, a lot of really good lessons here. Let's talk about first million revenue. Christian, what year was that for Paddle? Do you remember? So we started the business in 2012. I want to say it was probably to late 2013, maybe 2014. I don't remember exactly. Um, we he- fluctuated a bit. Um, like we probably got up to, we grew like really. So 2012, end of 2012, we started the business. 2013, early, sort of early, mid 2013, we like launched the first version of the product. First version of the product was basically the like what exists today, but with a marketplace on the front as well, because we thought that that was like kind of the way to um, sort of entice people to kind of use Paddle. Ended up shutting that down and then kind of just focusing on kind of the do it for you, the infrastructure piece. Um, scaled like relatively kind of like gradually from there. Um, so it was probably, yeah, 2014. I remember we got to about 500K in ARR. Um, sort of fairly quickly once we actually hit our stride with with what the product was. And then, so we got from like zero to 400 and then went back down to about like 50 um, because we lost like a, a customer that was like contributing like 350K in, in ARR. And then we had to then rebuild from 50 kind of back up. So yeah, that was, that was a fun, that was a fun year. And can I mean, in terms of usage and adoption of the product back in 2014, a million bucks in revenue for you if you're taking a 5% fee there, is it fair to say GMV? And that was somewhere around, what, 20 million bucks that year? Roughly somewhere in, in that region, yeah. Mm-hmm. That's the thing I like about Nathan. He's really good at basic math. And this yeah. stuff, this is how he trips up founders and telling secrets. Yeah. That's how it is. No, you're asking, you me, you're asking me stuff from a decade ago now. So always, I mean, always I'm like, going to mess this up. What was well, that number? Oh, well, and that number I asked you about 30 minutes ago, I'm going to multiply these now. Yeah. I love, I the love best, it. The best part of this is that Nathan is about to kind of like just quote the interview that I did with him. I know. He's like so good. Five years ago. And then he's going to see if the, they corroborate each other. And I'm going to be like, I'm going to mess something up. So. You're going to be like, oh my God. So uh, Christian, in uh, September of 2020, you did an interview with Dan Martell where you talked about passing 900 customers and $14 million in revenue. Part of that interview, you talked about how fast you're sort of growing year over year. You also broke 130% net dollar retention, incredible mm-hmm. metrics. And in that interview, you also said you saw 20 million bucks in the bank. So we have to sort of talk on your funding story as well, because you chose to raise cap- a lot of capital between 2012 and 2020. Tell us about that. Yeah, I think... So... So it, like actually raising capital was the first thing that we did as a business. Um, like, kind of, and it kind of comes back to kind of Patrick's point earlier. And it wasn't the initial round of money, uh, round of kind of funding, which was just a seed round from like one angel investor. Um, it was 150k um, pounds, so like two twenty dollars. Um, did you? So, I mean, most people are selling a big. I mean, were you able to minimize dilution because you had your own money at that point? You didn't need his cash. It wasn't, cash. yeah, it wasn't to do with, it wasn't, we didn't raise the money for the money. Um, we like my going into that, I was like, okay, Harrison and I have, have built, we've built a business before and it's done reasonably well. We've never built a company. Like, and we went into this, like very much with the idea of like, we are going to build a company and like, this will be worth a billion dollars someday. Like kind of some, pick some random number out of the sky. Billion and, four. Billion four. Um, but like, so like that was very much the intention from day one. Um, like the previous business was bootstrapped and we could have kept going with it and kind of doing all that stuff. But it was a very intentional moment where we were like, build a business. We never built a company. Um, so we went and raised that sort of like, call it 200, 200 grand, um, initially. 
And like part of that was like, I was an entrepreneur, a guy called Mark. Um, he bootstrapped a business to, I think it was probably like 20, 25 million in revenue. Um, okay. Kind of based in London. Um, he ended up selling it for a couple hundred million dollars. Um, and sort of like part of the deal was he invested this money, but we also just like Harrison and I got to move into his office. And every time we had a question, it was like, he'll point us in the direction of the people who deal with that. And we'll go and like bribe them with, with like, <laughs> with like chocolate and candy and stuff so that they can like, like a payroll issue or like whatever, like sort of, so that was like literally how we, he, we kind of like got the initial like knowledge that we needed to like build a company. Yeah. Um, so we made the decision very early that we were going to raise money and then sort of over the, like our, like we didn't raise a lot of money though. Like so Wait, Christian, hold on, hold on. before you finish the funding story. So, I mean, you're 18 sure. at this point, bribing this guy with chocolates to get free office space. Right. So you bring in 200 yeah. K there. I mean, what did the valuation conversation sound like back then? And can you share what the valuation was? I don't remember what the valuation was like explicitly. This was a very, I think, I think we have to remember like the kind of what the environment was like kind of back then it was, it was, I think it was it was definitely north of ten percent. It was sub kind of like yeah. twenty five. Being a um, European company as well, like yeah. UK Europe didn't have the cachet. I mean, it still, well, is I think I think if you I think if you fast forward a little bit, we ended up kind of topping up kind of um, uh, sort of that kind of seed round. I think probably like the year later when we met some more investors and things like that. Um, that we did it on a convertible note, like kind of yeah. like the remain like the other 800k and it was convertible at a discount to like when we did the series a um because we knew at that point we were going to be venture backed and we were going to kind of go down that route but like our series a was like three million bucks like Mm -hmm. this was like 2014 ish 15 or something like that um it was like like a three million dollar round these days is like a pre-seed pre-seed round it's like a pre-seed round for your pre-seed round like sort of like sort of you found that down the back of the sofa before you've like like at Kind of Sequoia's sort of office, um, so like it was a very different environment, um, kind of back then. And was that Series A sort of that ten million valuation range? You maybe sold 15 percent again. Uh, it was somewhere in that region. Yeah, so, so I get confused because like I'm talking three million US, and then I don't know like what yeah, the valuation yeah, yeah. actually was. But yeah, well, no, it's good. It's, I mean, the reason was, I'm asking is a lot, a lot of listeners right now. That was the same year you broke a million bucks in revenue. Right. So if you're listening right now, right, and you're breaking a million bucks in revenue, well, frankly, this is a seven year, eight year difference, right, between when Christian did this and when you guys are at today, but gives you at least one comparable. Now, yeah. fast- but also, also, that's probably roughly where the market is right now for, today. <laughs> for like raising, we've gone back to normal. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And you guys had perfect timing, which we'll get to here and talk about the deal in a second. Um, let, let's, though, let, let's actually fast forward a couple of years. So, Let's fast forward to maybe uh, Christian in 2020, right? So when you guys look at growth, right? You now have raised a bunch of capital. You're trying to grow. You got a clear vision. You're building out your executive team. What were you able to drive in terms of revenue growth from 2020 to 2021? Percentage is fine. Sorry, sorry, you cut out then. Yeah, you cut out. Right? Uh, per percentage revenue growth from 2020 to 2021. It was really high. Um, like it was because it was a sort of a little bit of a COVID aberration. Um, because we were, we saw like the tailwinds of all of that. Um, we at least doubled the business, um, mm-hmm. like kind of over that kind of period of time. Do you guys care about valuation right now, specifically your valuation? Do you think you might raise soon or sell a portion of the company? There is no other tool on the internet that you can use to get a better and higher valuation than FounderPath's new valuation tool. 
We have over 253 deals that went down over the past 30 days, all the revenue numbers, all the valuations, and the multiplier. That way you can go filter the data, find companies that are your same size, what they sold or raised for or at, and then use those as comparables in your decks to argue and debate and get a higher valuation and less dilution, which is the name of the game, less dilution. Check it out today at founderpath.com forward slash products. That's plural forward slash valuations. Again, both plural founderpath.com forward slash products forward slash valuations. And, and and so sorry, obviously COVID aberration there, but it's a two hundred percent growth. I mean, earlier in twenty twenty, um, again, you guys have done great interviews over the years. So there's a nice history to rely on here. But you'd communicated you broken about fourteen million bucks of AR in twenty twenty. So a 300 percent growth from twenty 2020 twenty to twenty twenty one. It's fair to say you broke twenty twenty one, well north of thirty million bucks in ARR. Sure. See, he's doing it. He's doing it. He's, he's doing. doing it. He's, he's doing, doing, doing his vodka thing. thing. Uh, these are important milestones to understand for my audience. You know, Baca, you know we love you. I'm just letting I know, you know. I, I love, we know we love you, but we have to rib you a little bit because no, I know I, I, love, I, I love I love you guys more. This is great. So okay, now so that's the that's sort of story on paddle side. Uh, Patrick, let's quickly go fill in your sort of middle eight years here. Right, that first hundred thousand bucks in sales that you landed. What were you selling? What'd you sell? Yeah, so we we had this fifty dollar. I had this fifty dollar a month pricing software product. We, uh, yeah, great, great price for a pricing software product. Um, uh, and, um, we ended up having like this guy named Scott Kersner, who's a, a Boston Globe columnist. Um, he basically wrote this article. Like I, I kind of, I didn't beg him, but I was definitely like, oh, it'd be really great if Scott Kersner wrote an article on us. And so I had a, I had some inbound and we had compete, compete.com, which some old school folks listening might remember smart bear and, um, Hallmark and Adidas, like these five, these four companies contacted us off the article and, uh, oh, and Runkeeper, uh, I think Runkeeper at the time as well. And basically, um, three of them were like, yeah, 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 cool software product. Can you just do the thing for us? Like, can you just give us the data at the end rather than us doing all the like stuff with the software? And at first I was like, oh, VCs don't like services. Oh no, I can't do this. Cause we were still, I was still thinking like, oh, we'll go raise money at some point. And then they basically were like, we will pay you a lot of money. And a lot of money at the time was like thousands of dollars, tens of thousands of dollars. And I was like, cool. So it was basically a tech-enabled service. Like I would um, get the output uh, from the software. I would give it to them in like basically a PDF. And then I would give them some commentary on it. And then they were like, can you give me more commentary? And I was like, I don't know, services. And they were like, we'll pay you, pay you a lot more money. And I was like, great. And so it kind of like morphed into that. And it was... Um, yeah, tech-enabled service for for basically like price intelligently like has basically evolved as a tech-enabled service for the past like decade, and the software kind of increases every single quarter. And um, yeah, it's been been a good ride. So, so I guess how many fifty-dollar per month plans did you sell before you said, okay, compete, smart Baradita's run keeper. I'll do your I'll do your tech-enabled service thing. We didn't shut that product down. We should have uh, earlier, but we didn't shut it down for. <laughs> Probably till 2015, and there were not many people on it. Like we we hit the page, but we hadn't shut down the product like for a while. I mean, you're um, talking like under 10k of MRR of people paying 50 bucks a month. Oh, 
Yeah, like probably okay. under a thousand dollars MRR, right? Like, okay, okay. Um, because we got it out there, and then you have to understand, like at that time, there wasn't this like indie hacker community. There wasn't product hunt. Like, I was literally just blogging and writing two blog posts a week about pricing in order to and sharing them on LinkedIn and doing the share in the LinkedIn group hack that like we all did for a little while, and that's what was driving traffic. And then I would, you know, they would download an indie book, I would get them on the phone, and like that was our cycle or my cycle basically to getting getting folks moving. Mm-hmm. Okay. And I mean, is that what now the free version of PropWell eventually became? Was that original tool that was uh, 50 bucks a month? No, 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 no. So we, there's, there were two things we were trying to find. So, like, so the first idea was, well, what if we hosted every SaaS pricing page in the world? Like, what would that look like? Right? Like that was the first idea. And then slowly over time, we were like, well, if we're going to optimize the pricing page, we need this other data. Like we need up funnel data. We need retention data. We need all, like we need a unified data stack. And we're like, okay, well, what if we just went and got the unified data stack, right? Like we wanted this like product that could like, you know, be more pure software. And so that was the original idea um, was kind of like, what if new relic was for revenue? Like what would new relic look like for revenue, like revenue monitoring. Right. Um, and then we were helping a company that was about to IPO with their pricing, and we discovered that they were calculating churn and MRR incorrectly. So we kind of started on this like, cool, let's do this financial metrics product. And we got out there. Um, we had like ten people on it. Um, well, what year was this, Patrick? This was 2013, uh, late 2013, early 2014. And all of a sudden, what ended up happening is, is like we were about to like announce it to our like really weak email list. <laughs> then all of a sudden, like Josh Pigford, uh, Bear Metrics got out there and like got the hacker news crowd, like was, you know, the microconf crowd. Everyone was loving it because it's like, it's a good idea. And ChartMogul was kind of building in parallel as well. And there were like 30 different products in the market within six to 12 months. And so we were building this thing very slowly. Um, and then all of a sudden it was like, should we, like, what should we do? Well, the market kind of is crowded now. Analytics products are notoriously difficult. Like we had known this from our pricing customers. Like analytics was a really hard thing to monetize. We did our own little pricing research and customer development, and basically discovered like we really have to go up market or give this away for free or stop building it altogether. Yeah. Um, and up market meant we had to raise money. We weren't really ready to do that at that point. Like in our minds, um, shutting it down didn't seem right because we knew there was this future with the data that we could get. And so that's where the free the free product kind of came to be. And that's honestly, that's where we should have raised money right there. And mm-hmm. the reason is, is because um, distribution, it all worked out, but distribution on a free product is really difficult because you have to support that free product. And a free product, what a lot of people don't realize, it has to be better than the paid competition. If it's worse than the paid competition, what ends up happening is people just, they don't use it, right? Because it's not worth it, like their time most of the time. And the other thing is if it's a financial product, it has to be accurate. And accuracy for a financial product, people will not appreciate, but they won't use your product if it's inaccurate. And so it's one of those things that was like really important. We should have raised money right there, at least a small seed fund or seed round or something like that in order to like, you know, accelerate that probably by a year. Like we probably lost a year by not raising a small round for that. And so with this strategy, what year did you guys break 10 million bucks in revenue? Do you remember? <sighs> I don't remember. I think maybe I, I actually don't remember. Like I want to say 2018, 2019, but I have for some reason that's just coming into my head, but I have no mm-hmm. idea. And you're probably gonna and, be like in an interview that you and I did in 2016, you said you were six million or something like that. Yeah, you know, since, yeah, since yeah. is a since is a friendly interview, I'll just share with all of you guys that have your own podcast and do interviews. 
information is way more powerful when people don't know you have it. So just because you know the numbers, it doesn't make sense to tell the person you're interviewing what the numbers are they said historically. It's much better to hear what they say today than after the fact they'll compare it to what Mm. they said in the past. I know. That's you why guys are right on the money. There's nothing here that's like way off from Great. what you've, you know, well, you know what, what, I've, what I've brought together. I love you unless there's a recorded microphone. Okay. That's what, no, <laughs> you still yeah. love me right now. This has been very fun. I've very much enjoyed this so far. And we'll spend maybe you're, you're on your comments. best behavior and I love it. No, no, I'm well, just kidding. Well, yeah, well I, I had to, I just, I'm not as aggressive because I had to just prepare for this one a bit more and really think about the storyline. So Let's build backfill this for a second. Of that 10 million revenue, Patrick, how much of that would you say was sort of the Adidas, the Runkeeper, the Smart Bears of the yeah. world that are paying you $100,000, $200,000 contracts? I think in 2018, 2019, it was the vast majority. So our revenue, like, because we didn't start stepping on the gas for retain, basically, or recognize our two paid like other products until probably 2019. Um, so we had a trickle of revenue probably in 2018 from retain. We started building it up and then like our serious sales team didn't really start until 20 late 2019, 2020. Um, and that's when like the software stuff started going and like the revenue on the price intelligently side, like the LTV is amazing. It's hundreds of thousands of dollars. Like the churn is tough because these very large companies, these enterprise companies, those are the ones who end up not churning because they always have budgets for this type of research and things like that. It was the Johnny and Jane startups who would buy a year of price intelligently. And then after that year, they'd spent $150,000, $200,000. And it was like, like we had given them so much that it was going to take them another year to just implement everything. Right. And they were kind of already implementing it three years in. So we stopped serving. Well, we really stopped focusing on them. Like we would only take them inbound and only under certain circumstances. We started focusing probably in 2017, 2018, like going up market essentially for that product. Um, but yeah, that's that that timeline there. How I mean, many? So ten, yeah, it's really hard. I mean, of that 10 million though rate of revenue, I mean, is this average contract right of like 200 grand? So you're only working with 25 customers a year sort of deal? Is that the kind of mix? Uh, it was... I think the ACV was lower, like closer to 150, I think, um, during that time. It's hard. I do have a product that I could log in and tell you this information, but I really don't remember. (laughs) Yeah, I don't remember exactly right now. But yeah, it's... um, that's why I don't remember is because I have a product I can log in. No. The point is, though, you're working with a very limited number, 60 to 70 customers a year, right? 150K a pop. On that product, yeah. And then on ProfitWell, the metrics product... They're users because they're not paying us, right? But then all of a sudden, you have thousands and thousands of company every single year, like um, up to about um, you know thirty thousand now, like on that particular product. And so, and that's that's also a hard thing about free is like support. You have like like if you can have a free product that's better than the paid competition and the support is good, holy cow! Like it's an amazing thing for your brand and your market. Um, so we made serious dedication that we wanted like great support, even though it was free. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that, you know, it's all cost, right? And so you have to have a larger vision if you're doing that, um, which we definitely did have. So Christian, this is going to be a, sort of a weird question, uh, but it'll be a good one. If I asked you to describe how Patrick was making money on the software tools that he really got going in late 2019, 2020, retain plus Patrick, what was the other one? Uh, recognized, revenue recognized. Retain and recognized. Christian, how would you describe the revenue model on those? Uh, I would describe it, um, recognizes a little bit, kind of a little bit different, little bit different. recognize for those who don't know is a revenue recognition, like ASC 606 sort of kind of RevRec product. Um, 
that's like literally a kind of monthly fee um kind of sort of because it tends to only be applicable to larger kind of yeah. enterprises who actually over a care, million a year typically care about it yeah um on the retained side of things i would say it's sort of a very similar model to to paddle yeah um it's sort of like that product for for those that sort of haven't come across it before is a product that helps you fight kind of voluntary and involuntary churn so credit card failures cancellations sort of all of that stuff and is priced on the basis of um, kind of how much revenue kind of does retain generate you or save you? How many customers does it stop from churning or bring back into the product? Yeah. Um, through all of these different channels, email, SMS, sort of automated, sort of payment retries, all of this stuff. Um, it's very quantifiable. Like there is a before and before retain and after retain number that yeah. you can point to. Um, and retain effectively monetizes on the basis of how much money it, it, it recovers. Um, it's sort of like historically has been a monthly fee um, because sort of they haven't, because ProfitWell hasn't kind of actually been party to that kind of payment, but you can obviously take a monthly fee divided by kind of how much money it's sort of um, recovered and kind of, you can sort of then kind of equate that to a percentage. Um, as well. I see. So is that, is it, Patrick, when you're selling retained today, I mean, is that what it is? Is it, is it, here's how much we think we can save you. You're going to pay us this amount, which is kind of equal to this percent, but you have to lock in for sort of a year at this fixed subscription price. No, you don't have to lock in at all. I mean, that's the okay. beauty of it. Is I think um, it's purely pay for performance. So right. So what now, is the average percent you're keeping then on that? Would you say? Uh, I can tell you. Is it five? It's roughly between four and six percent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like it's still tiered right now. Um, okay. Someone did their diligence. I did my diligence. I was about um, to say that's why a Christian might know your business, Patrick, better than you <laughs> with the team he had. Doing I don't business. know, but no. What it is is like. <laughs> Basically, we can establish a baseline of like your recovery. And we can do this not only for credit card failures, but also like of people who hit your cancel button, how many actually churn. Um, and what we can do is we can establish that baseline and then our products are free up until that baseline. So if you're recovering every 20 out of 100 failed payments, the first 20%, no matter your size, is always going to be free. And then we can calculate the revenue delta. Like let's say we increase it to 40%. We can calculate that revenue delta and that delta basically corresponds to to a particular like yield. And as like as we recover more, like we have very large companies on that product who where we're recovering millions of dollars per year in additional revenue for them. Um, they're not paying us millions of dollars per year. Um, yeah, you're keeping so a percent one of those of it. things. Yeah, and it's it's not quite a straight percentage. And, and the reason is is that on that type of a product, and it's actually a little bit different on billing, which is kind of a fun pricing conundrum. Like. Um, a percent cut feels punitive, but if I position it as a flat rate that is essentially a percentage anyways, like that little mind trick like makes the sales process so much easier. Um, so if we just said, hey, it's 5% of whatever we recover or 5% over a particular baseline, our sales wouldn't be as strong as like, here's this number. We recover $10,000. The price is going to be $8,000 for that first month. All of a sudden, it like you know just changes that conversation, if that makes sense. I see. I see. Guys, I moved my next meeting so we could have 15 more minutes together, but I want to be respectful of your time. Do you have 15 more minutes? Yeah. yeah we sure. have like 10. You're 15, good? Yeah. Okay. Um, okay. Got it. So on that retained product, uh, I mean, so Patrick, can you share in 2020, what was the total amount of dollars that you guys say, you know what? We feel like if they didn't have retained, they would not have kept this amount of dollars across all the, the whole customer base. Then he's going to multiply. Such a good way he's to gonna multiply it by 5%. And then all of a sudden he's going to... Well, no, it's not know, a straight revenue fee, right? This. Uh, I, I honestly could not tell you what that number is. I'm not evading you. 
I do know that right now, last month, I believe we were recovering. We have the ego number and then we have the like real number. The ego number is like the amount of dollars that go through all retained forms. That's the number I know because of the ego. Um, That's $22 million a month. Um, And so... And just to be clear, that's that's money that you guys touch that you feel like you've saved, and then you have to tell a customer we believe it's because of us. So that number is like what we touched that like went through like our our stuff, right? But then we have to take out the baseline, right? So it's not like we brought an additional twenty two million. It's I think it's also that that number, the twenty two million number, is also MRR. Yeah, it's MRR. So it's like that's you know. To 40 to 50 million plus a year right now. And that number is going up every single month. Um, but it's calculated as MRR. So it could be yeah. a it could be a thousand dollar transaction yeah, that actually yeah. only equates to an 80, $83 um, yeah. of that number. Something like that. So yeah, we're that's the ego number. We we would need to take out sorry, sorry, Christian, I want to make sure I, I want to make sure I clearly understand that. Patrick, you too. So Last, you're saying last 30 days, you feel like about $250 million of monthly recurring revenue went through the platform, of which you helped keep $22 million. No, 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 no. So that, that, that kind of muddled it a little bit. The, the, basically, the last 30 days, we've recovered $22 million through Retain. Oh, of um, MRR. Yes. Most of it is MRR. There's a portion of it that's like an annual we recovered that isn't MRR. So like, it's a little under 22 million. And then in, to get to the number you're asking, we'd have to take out the baseline. I see. Um, which I don't have offhand. This is still powerful. I mean, so just to put this in a sense to make it very clear, retains working across 30,000 connected accounts. You guys effectively helped retain top line, the big number, 22 million of MR, almost 250 million bucks of ARR, of which you feel like some portion of that is directly attributable to the technology you've built. Yeah, 100%. Perfect. I love, see, this is so easy. That was perfect. This is so great. easy. All right, so, so let's fast. Let's fast forward. We got Christian's growth rate, right? Right, sort of like past, call it two years. What did you guys grow at past twelve months? Uh, I don't know. I'm trying to think if he knows any other numbers. Well, I think the I think no. the difficult thing, kind of on this, is obviously the um, like if you take like uh, kind of Patrick mentioned earlier that sort of obviously the 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 PI business sort of has been growing kind of over time is a reasonably substantial kind of portion of revenue. And then kind of, I think as Patrick mentioned, like really started focusing sales team build and kind of go to market stuff on retain and the software products, probably like 2018, 19. So yeah. I think there's two lines of business here. Like one of them is growing, like the PI business is growing really nicely. Um, like kind of, and it sort of, it almost mirrors the software company. It's, it's a little bit odd, yeah. but then like retain and the software products have been like ripping. Yeah, yeah. So retain, we more than doubled um, in twenty twenty one, and so that so from one, from twenty to twenty twenty one, it more than doubled. Yeah, more than doubled. Yeah. Um, yeah. PI, I think, is growing. It had a good clip. I think the problem is, is like bookings is like didn't double, but it was like I think greater than fifty percent. But you also have to keep yeah. in mind, like, there's some serious churn there. Like the retention is not like software retention. Um, And so it's just a little bit different. And I think that's the thing with like, if you're going to do a productized service for a tech enabled service, like for those listening, like you kind of have to set, I wouldn't set professional service expectations because I think then you're like, oh, like margin doesn't matter. Like the growth doesn't matter. I would set more of an expectation of like, 
no, no, no. Let's compare this to software, but realize it's not going to be software. Like the margin on that business is closer to like 55, 60%. Um, then, you know, a, like retain the margin is like 95%. Um, if, if that makes sense. No, it makes perfect sense. Um, it makes perfect sense. So get fast forward. Christian, you said sort of PI is again, obviously material part of the revenue. That's more you know, the story there from 2012 to 2019 really was only that until you guys got serious about retainer recognized in 2020. Can you share, I mean, when you say material important, I mean, more than 60% of revenue you guys would attribute to PI? Um, in 2018, 19 or 2018. Yeah. 2018 and 2019, like definitely. Well, yeah, because that was really the only thing you were doing, right? Yeah, exactly. I mean, I mean, today though, are you able to share? I mean, PI was more than sixty. Uh, more than I think. I think the thing that we can share is every single year. So if you look back from eighteen nineteen today, every single year it has encompassed a larger percentage of the overall business. Yeah, yeah. Sort of, and like will continue to kind of over t- like in the long term. I think like the like that business will end up being kind of ninety plus percent of the. You're talking you know, about like retain and recognize. This, yeah, yeah. The, the yeah, software yeah. revenues of, of profit while standalone will end up being 90 plus percent of yeah. the, the business. I think the way we're yeah. looking at it now is like the of the combined business, like PI is probably evolving into like something that's a little bit more not just pricing like service, but also like some other growth service. So we can play around not only with the margin of that business, but also like the growth of that particular business in a lot of different ways. And so there's some interesting implications there. And, and I think that that we're like, we're probably going to continue, we're going to continue to grow it, um, but we'll see how it evolves, right? Because it's kind of like, it's kind of like a very efficient, very like effective professional service organization. But like I was saying before, like, I don't want to refer to it as that because a lot of professional service organizations like, oh, just margin neutral. Oh, like, you know, if we lose some money, it's fine. Like, that's just, I don't think that's how we want to run it because I think we want to be an accelerant of, you know, the paddle customer base um, and also an accelerant of like people coming into the paddle ecosystem and things like that. So here's my best estimate of profit well revenue at the end of 2021, right? So back in December, these two can comment on it if not, but for the audience, here's where my head is at, right? They break they break 10 million. This is, and there's a lesson at the end of this, which I'll, which I'll touch on too, but it sounds like 2019, about 10 million bucks of revenue is pure price intelligently. They get going on retain and recognize in 2020. They grow it to about 22 million bucks, right? Last 30 days of sort of revenue retained, of which Patrick has to say, hey, customers, we think we're responsible for helping you keep some percent of the 2022 million. Let's say he can only say they are responsible for 10 million of that. And they price against 4%, right? 4%, the low end of what Christian said, 4 to 6%. That means you know that product is generating about 400,000 bucks of monthly recurring revenue or about $5 million in run rate currently. Great growth. Sounds like Christian is saying basically over time that product can be 95% of this business. But today, sounds like between five and 10 million is retained and recognized, and between 10 and 15 million is effectively PI. So when you guys sold going to that that sale conversation, Patrick, were you guys sort of in that 20 to 25 million dollar total revenue range? Uh I will not confirm or deny anything. Um yeah, I will, I will, I won't. But I will say hey, so editors, he just said, yeah, just edit out the part where he said he can't confirm or deny, just stick the yeah and perfect. There's our clip. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, totally. Um, By the way, I don't think you should shy away from this. The reason I'm summing this up is not till I get you in a gotcha. What it is to showcase no, no, though no, no, is I know. a lot of people build an agency to get smart about their customers and then totally. they actually shut the whole thing down. 
instead of trying no, to- No, I don't think you should shut it down. I think, I think there are circumstances in which you should continue to run them. Like we would get so many retain and profitable users from people coming into price intelligently. I, I, I think what's really interesting is like, like the, the revenue numbers, not to get really meta here. <laughs> it's a weird, I don't know why we don't share these things, but like once you get over 10 million, like it's almost like there's no advantage to sharing. So like your logic is sound, you're in the ballpark, but like, I'm not going to say if you're higher or lower, but you're in the general ballpark, if that makes sense. Um, but it is one of those interesting things. Like now I'm at a, a, a I'm at a venture backed unicorn. And it's like one of these things where I'm always like, huh, like we don't share these things publicly. And I'm not really sure why, but I think it's also because of like, you know, you just reserve your optionality. Um, you know, going forward with That's future exactly right. and all that kind of stuff. That's exactly right. It's a great press release for you guys. Once you break a hundred million run rate, you want to save it for you to make that announcement when you break it. I, I get CD it. Did there? Christian, I, that press release is coming out sometime in the next 12 months, right? Who knows? Maybe, maybe, maybe the maybe, press release. Maybe we just out. didn't send a press release. Yeah. And we should have. <laughs> no, look, the, the other benchmark here, I'll say guys is listen, if you're like Patrick and you're bootstrapping your company, whether it's a mix of sort of his, his version of PI and retain plus recognize or whatever, uh, one quick way to sort of understand how bootstrappers are doing on average that, you know, if most customers or or employees are in the U S they do about 250,000 bucks of revenue per employee. So at 71 employees today, based off Patrick's LinkedIn profile, right. Times 250 K puts revenue right at about 19 million bucks of run rate. I think they're a little higher than that at around 23 ish gives you a really good estimate though. And gives you an idea of like, are you above 250 K in revenue per employee or not? Healthy SaaS company. And it gave Patrick optionality to go pursue Christian. Now let's get into the deal guys. It wasn't just Christian. Patrick, how do you start having the conversations about okay, we might sell this thing? Um, that was old Christian. That was that was old. <laughs> it was all diverse. It just maybe Christian, you should eyes. take it then. What 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 uh, made you move? Well, no, I think I think we definitely weren't the only people involved, but I think we kicked off the conversation. Like I flew to Boston and I kind of pitched Patrick. Yeah. Um, on kind of this idea. Um, we had no we had no intention of selling. Honestly, um, we were going to raise going to raise money. Um, and then Christian was like, what if we buy you? And I was like, what? Like, I didn't know that was an option. It's not like, it's almost like you're, you're bootstrapping. You're like, go, 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 grow, go, 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 grow. You're like an operator. And then you're like, oh, I didn't even like, you're not thinking of an exit. Like a lot of times, like, I think there's some founders that's how they think is like, great. I'm going to optimize this in two years. I'm going to do that. Um, for me and, and Faku and Peter, it's just not how we thought. Um, I do think we then, it was one of those things where I was saying this before, like all of a sudden we were like three weeks in and we're like, oh my God, we're in a process. I didn't realize it, but we're in a process. And so um, I think that, that that's a lesson for some folks. I think you should always be ready to like run a process. And that means like, even if you're bootstrapped, have a deck, have like an overview, like memo or a deck or whatever it is. Um, have like some of your financials or a data room. Like you don't have to have an actual data room, but have like something you can provide that's data room esque. Um, those types of things you should you should just have for basic hygiene. Um, and I so it's the same. Just to add, like if you're venture backed, like you always have this stuff to hand. Like kind of yeah. you. I think you speak to lots of founders who are raising money and they find themselves in a the process. Like you've spoken to like two people over coffee and suddenly you have a term sheet. You're like oh, like what do I do with what this? Do we do like, now? Yeah. yeah. And that was a thing that like, and all of a sudden, thankfully, this is another thing that you should do is you should always keep potential acquirers, I would say, warm. So for the past number of years, we had like a slide in our board deck of like, here are the potential acquirers. And then basically like, 
where is the stage of conversations with them? And in like some of them, it's like nothing, right? Or the, a lot or of the other ones like, in the board deck. Um, we had, I think we had about 15 people. The obvious ones were like Stripe, Chargebee, Zora, um, Shopify was one of them, Adobe, HubSpot, Salesforce, uh, Square, Adyen. That's great. That's I think helpful. those were the, the most obvious ones. I don't know. There's probably some off the wall ones I'm, I'm not remembering. Um, oh, like uh, some of the rev-based financing guys, Pipe, Capchase, like of recent, they were on the slide as well. And it doesn't mean you're selling to any of these people. It just means that like, these are the people that like, if I get into a process, all of a sudden, these are like the people I contact or the people I get back channeled to and stuff like that. And so, um, yeah, December and the first part of January was like not what I expected it to be. Um, basically, what ended up happening is... Um, we were really excited about Paddle and we got over the whole like ego part of like, oh yeah, we can get more resources by joining forces. And, you know, I've always liked Christian and like the missions are very, very similar, like different, different entry points, but very, very similar. And so all of a sudden it's turned into like, okay, we're running a process. So like back channeling, all these other things, getting the intros, playing the game. I got to the point like towards the end of that first week where I was just like emailing people. I was like, Hey, this is what's happening. Like, if you want to talk, let me know rather than like doing the whole, like, Oh my God, let me get someone to intro and suggest that we're like in a process. Cause I think like there's enough urgency with a lot of this stuff, like when you have like a suitor. Um, and so it's one of those things where um Christian like, just called you like a suitor, huh? I know. Um, my sultry <laughs> suitor and Christian here. But um no, long story short, though, like it to, to kind of finish it off, because I do think it's helpful. Having like, we had a memo that was basically like, this is how we think about the world. Here's everything. We had a basic data room. That was just like a Google sheet. Um, we kind of, we did play the game, like, you know, kind of this type of thing. But then like we were kept conversations, obviously. I came to London in December or November, early December, came in January. Nope. I don't know if it was in January. I can't I remember. Can Salt Lake. Yeah. You came to Salt Lake as well. And so, yeah, there was, there were definitely some meetings and like, Honestly, I think it was like, if I look in hindsight, like I wouldn't have seen this at the time, but it was kind of like, no, like we wanted to do this, but we also wanted to not be irresponsible to like shareholders and stuff. And so, um, yeah, we did get other offers. Those other offers, they were not as compelling from a team perspective. Um, They might have been more lucrative depending on how you look at it, but it was one of those things where the core of us as well as like myself wanted to keep going. We didn't want to like, cool, half the team leaves and, you know, we'll get director level roles somewhere. We wanted to like be involved and have high leverage in terms of like the the, the game, I guess is the best way to put it. Christian deals are moving animals. And the first term sheet you gave to Patrick and, and team, what was sort of the total deal price? Uh, was it far below 200 or do you sort of stick to right around 200? <laughs> um, it was lower. Um, I'll, I'll say that it was well. You picked a hell of a target, but I mean, if I'm going to go buy a SaaS company, I'm not going to pick an ex NSA guy. I mean, come on. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that is true. Yeah, um, it was. It was several. It was. It was tens of millions, like lower. Yeah. Um, and and what kinds of things could you have done? This is guys for all of you listening around trying to buy your first SaaS company. Maybe it's not for two hundred million bucks. Maybe it's for a million or five million. Yeah. Christian, what are things you could have done to try and prevent? Patrick from running our process so that you could get it cheaper. I don't think, I don't think it's, I, I think that like there's a very, I don't know whose quota is or like whatever. It's sort of like businesses are either bought or they're sold. Yeah. Profit yeah. well was bought. 
yeah. it was not sold. Yeah. Like, um, like Patrick didn't go through a decision where he's like, you know what, like, yeah, like I could use a new car. Like, I'm gonna go. Sell we talked business. up until like, the day before we signed the term sheet of whether we're doing this or not. And like, there was a lot was of uncertainty. What was term Sorry? sheet date? What was term sheet date? Uh, the day we signed, January 10th ish, yeah. 10th, 15th, yeah. somewhere around there. Yeah. Um, the first term sheet probably came a week, two weeks before that. Yeah, like, yeah, it was yeah. sort of yeah. just between Christmas and New Year. And then yeah. deal closed, final red lines was what, April 14th? I think sign was April 8th. Close was t- April 20th, something. 23rd, yeah, split sign close, which was yep. fun to find out. Close is money wired, right? Uh, yeah. yeah, basically. Yeah, essentially. Yeah. I think technically. Okay, I got like, basically and essentially. What am I missing about clothes not being 100% wire? I mean, like. Oh, no, no. Like, that was part of it as yeah. well. There were just other pieces. Yeah, so yeah, we had like well. this giant if then statement going with like <laughs> investors as well. Cause it wasn't like Paddle just had the money in the bank. Like, we, we yeah. had to raise, right? Which I was loose, like very tangentially involved in. But like, Christian had to go. He had to like, like, it's kind of funny, like how. There's, I don't know how many of these have happened in SaaS, like a dozen, like this way, like convinces us to sell, like manages us through that whole process while he's like managing it after we send a term sheet, goes and raises like hundreds of millions of dollars to like pay for it in a not so great market. And then like all of this stuff has to like cascade together, like in terms of legal as well as like the funds and all that kind of fun stuff. Right. Because if you think about it too, like this is something I didn't know, but like when when you go to like a KKR and you're like, great, I will take a hundred million of your dollars or I'll take 200 million of your dollars. Like, it's not like they just have that money in the account, right? They have to go talk to their LPs to have committed and basically do like a capital call. And the, and, and the LPs can be like, nah, I'm good. Right. Like th- that's possible, which is kind of crazy. Right. And so, especially in an environment like where we've oh, seen tech. Yeah. Well, you guys had great timing. You guys had very nice timing yeah. here. KKR would have skilled. no, no issues. You should give us yeah. all of your money to manage. Like we're yeah. very yeah. good timing. We've said that kind of more than anything else. It's definitely not skill. It was luck, but like two months earlier and we might've raised like a three and a half billion dollar valuation. That would not have been good. And that wouldn't have been good for, for the company because it would have been you know, overpriced. We would have been trying to grow into it. Two months later, I think the deal might Probably not have done. happened like at all. Um, not so because it, any of us would have pulled out. It's just the money might not have. Yeah, come yeah, yeah. Out. KKR's got a cal LPs and LPs don't wire. You know that's what happens. Now, I mean, yeah. Christian, let me ask you a question about doing a deal like this. I mean, it, it, look, I don't know how much cash obviously you had in the bank pre-deal, but you could have done this deal. It just would have been very uncomfortable in terms of how low your cash balance would have been if you didn't go out and get this extra two hundred million bucks worth of cushion. Correct. Uh, in terms of being able to do this off balance, with past trying to with figure completely. out, he's trying to figure yes. out the cash equity split right now. Uh, like we're That's what he's trying to do. Of, we're, we're not a super high burn business, but we were kind of we're not profitable. Like uh, sort of prior to this, um, I think could we have done it? Maybe, maybe like probably not. I think it would have been irresponsible. Yeah, it would have been irresponsible. <laughs> like, like from a C- C- like we would have C- had financial like, perspective. Given that given that we're a given that we're a like loss making kind of company, like and we're focused on growth, like we would have had yeah. zero to sort of like yeah. fairly negative runway like afterwards. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you based off based off what I've cobbled together, right, Christian, you did an interview in late 2019 where you shared you had 20 million left in the bank. You then raised another six to eight million series C in November 2020. So that's assuming no burn, that's 68 plus 20. 
right? That's 78, 98, 88 million bucks of cash in the bank. Let's say you burn eight. So you have 80 million cash in the bank. I don't know how much of the 200 million bucks was cash versus equity, but I'm going to assume it was somewhere around 50, 50. You could have figured out a way to get this deal done, but it would have been very silly. Very, 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 very so silly. Good. It would have been, it would have been irresponsible. Laka is so good. I He's like really him. good. I like him. Yeah. yeah. Um, uh, it would have been irresponsible for us to do. Um, like the thing is like, you think that like, like the thing is with like this type of like transaction as well, is like whether we could have done it without raising money or not, it's sort of like irrelevant to would we have done it without raising yeah, money. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think kind of one of the one of the things like with this is sort of like our like our ambition level of beach company individually was already high. I think the ambition level of the combined company is even higher. Yep, yep, yep. Um so it's sort of and like knowing you both personally I totally agree. Like just knowing you guys as, as individuals together, I'm going, oh my God, this is like, this is one plus one equals seven. Yeah. And, and it's sort of like that. Probably 12. But yeah. Sure. That, and that's kind of like the rationale for us. And it's sort of, so it becomes like a question of like, could we have done this? Maybe, maybe not. Like, would we have done it if we hadn't had like sort of, sort of tens and tens of millions of dollars after the transaction in order to be able to go and deploy together in order to be able to, to kind of create something to like realize the potential of something being greater than the sum of its parts, sort of probably not. Yeah. 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 And just to be clear, the 200 million raised Series D, that, that was all cash or was a portion of that SVB debt? A uh, portion of it was debt. Yeah. Okay. 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 What's that usual split? I mean, 150 cash? It was, debt? Vast, it was vast majority cash. Um, okay. 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 Sort okay. of. I actually think the the number, if you include sort of like the, we rounded it to like a like a, a whole number, but it, the yeah. actual number including the debt was pretty like substantially north of 200 million. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Christian, you know what I thought, how far substantially are we talking like 300 million or under 300 million? Oh, under 300 million. Just okay, like got it. kind of got it. Sort of, so somewhere like, between no debt and a hundred million of debt, somewhere in that amount of debt on top of yes. the 200. Yeah. yeah. Okay. That is the range. I'll leave, that is the range here. <laughs> I'll leave, so I'll leave that range. So what, what is the interest rate on it? What do you pay? Yeah. Much much for your <laughs> no, no, no. Look, back channel it, you worked with SVB, right? Did Patrick, did you guys work with Aaron directly? Sorry, who did you, did you work with Aaron at SVB, the, the head of EMEA? Uh, yeah. So, yeah, I yeah. mean, we've we've been an SVB customer for yeah. like nearly a decade. Um, yeah. So, kind of, we had kind of we'd had debt facilities with them before as well. Kind of that we've always kind of maintained just to um, have an insurance policy. So, kind of they were our first choice. Um, we went through kind of to a couple of other providers as well, and kind of eventually came back to SVB. They were the people that we knew, and and yeah, yeah. You guys can't share terms, but I'll share based off conversations I have with other other folks in SVB directly. I mean, these are great. These are great terms. SVB is very friendly if you raised a bunch of cash to go get a line, right? Equal to something like 20 to 30% of the total equity check, where they can come in and give you in a four-year term and something like, you know, three to five percent effective cost of capital. It's a great way to beef up the balance sheet a little bit. So obviously these guys again can't comment on their own terms, but that's sort of what you can expect. So um, I guess um moving forward, guys, uh, so the space combined together, obviously you're building this together. One of the things you told me pre-show is you feel like what's getting a bit lost in translation here is that you guys are really thinking about it, thinking about this as sort of a do it for you play moving forward. What does that mean? Yeah. So the basic idea is that if you think about the first wave of SaaS, like let's say it's 2000 to 2015, it was very focused on like building tools that 
allowed, enabled you to do work or enabled you to show your boss you're doing work. Um, you think about Salesforce, like Salesforce isn't built for the sales rep. It's built for the VP or the director level, the reporting, making sure the AEs are doing their activities. Um, I think as the market's gotten more and more competitive, this next wave of SaaS is basically focused on like, how do I enable you, Nathan, the ability to focus on your customer and focus on basically your product and your team, the three things that you should be focused on um, by basically taking all this other stuff off your plate and doing it for you. And you're seeing this in a number of different ways that like products are being built. Um, Like Rippling is being built in a very like, you know, do it for you way. You have products like Main Street, all these other things where it's like you just plug something in or you just put in some inputs and it's just taken care of for you. Mm-hmm. Um, the most dramatic example of this has been like, you know, basically the the the, the robot, you know, type tools, um, you know, even Zapier, these types of things. I think that's the next wave of where things are going and where we kind of feel is there's all these things that you shouldn't be an expert in. There's all these things that you're probably not going to be a true expert in. Like when it comes to billing, running, and ultimately like growing your subscription business, and we can take all that off your plate. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And Christian, I mean, it, do you think it is really? I mean, I, I know you guys as your genesis is SaaS and subscription, but you've also identified some big opportunities with game developers, applications, other things like that. I mean, help me understand. You know, in three years, what percent of your customer base do you think is non-SaaS, non-traditional SaaS? Uh, I would, I would, like. I would be reluctant to kind of put a percentage on it um, because I just don't know how some of these things are going to go. But I think that, I think there is a question that in three years time, like kind of what is SaaS? Like kind of, are we still calling it SaaS? Is it recurring revenue? Are we kind of going more towards usage-based or microtransaction pricing, whether it's on the B2C or B2B side? So I think there are all of these kind of questions that are sort of like sub-questions of that. Um, I think for us, like there's a very natural progression for us, I think, from like B2C software to B2B software to usage-based pricing to kind of, okay, on the consumer side, um, games sort of like they have recurring revenue, but do they have subscription revenue? Yeah. Sort of, They probably don't have subscription revenue, but they certainly have, like if you're talk, thinking about like Fortnite or something like this, they certainly have recurring revenue of like repeat purchase. So, and, and I think that, I think the, the constant along a lot of these businesses is going to be like, is this transaction truly digital? Like kind of, I think kind of the, the step for us between do we do this for a SaaS business and do we do it for a game is sort of fairly short versus the step of like, do you do it for a SaaS business do you, versus do you do it for Glossier or like kind of like one of these sort of D to C e-commerce people is that's a pretty big gap. Um, so I think as we continue to grow, like the breadth of these things will will kind of expand um, within digital and, and software and kind of software adjacent. Um, but I think that our definition of what what is consumer software and kind of things like that it's probably going to evolve over that same period of time as well. Guys, on that note, you just heard two very interesting stories, both launched in 2012. Obviously, Patrick with Price Intelligently hustled his way with three other co-founders who weren't as engaged with him to 200000 bucks in sales. Ultimately said, you know what, man, I can help Adidas, Smarper, or Runkeeper, you know, help them for 150 grand contracts, help them get their pricing right, do it for you. That grew to about $10 million in revenue by 2019. By 2020, he goes, you know what, man, we've got a real opportunity with helping people retain and also their recognized product growing quickly, over $22 million of retained revenue the past 30 days of which ProfitWell 
keep some percentage of that. But that business line growing quickly, more than doubling, tripling year over year, while that underlying price intelligently tool continues to grow, but harder. Uh, Christian believes that now post-acquisition, that that retained post-recognized tool will eventually make up more than 95% for the original ProfitWell business. Meanwhile, on the on the Christian side, right, he's got 14, 15, 16 years old, doing millions of revenue going, I hate these little 4% fees that are killing me, these taxes I don't even know about. How do I automate all this? He said, you know what? I'm going to quit this thing. I'm going to launch Paddle back in 2012 myself, put in 100 grand of his own money, brought in a co-founder, Harrison, who got caught 20, 30%, whatever, ultimately said, you know what? We're going to raise no matter what. So bootstrapped versus raise. He ended up having you know caught 900 customers, 14 million bucks of AR in 2020, more than doubling year over year to well north of 35 million uh, last year, maybe 40, 50 million, 60 million this year as they continue to grow. But together, they're hoping to really usher in this new you know space, middle layer infrastructure. And most importantly, not just saying, here's a tool for you to use, but actually doing it for you. Follow the journey, follow the deal, go to wesigntomorrow.com to see how they got it done. And most importantly, check out paddle.com, profitwell.com to test out the product. Jens, thanks for a great time today. Thank thanks, you. Omi. Great summary. Love it, love it, love it.